This is the Echo Chamber PR podcast, brought to you by the Homes Report and TVC Group. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Echo Chamber, our first episode of 2014 and episode number 13 overall. Unlucky for some, but not for us, because we had we are joined today by Homes Report publisher, CEO, etc. Paul Holmes. Paul, welcome to the Echo Chamber. Thank you. I know that it was a great coup for you to be able to persuade me to come on today. So, Well, I, I talked to your people at length, and, <laughs> and finally um, they found a window for you to join us, so thanks. Actually, yeah. it is the first time I've been back in the country in about three weeks. So tell us a little about your travels. That's actually quite a good place to start. You were in Turkey, if I'm not mistaken, last week. I was. Um, I spent the first half of the week in Istanbul for the 10th anniversary of the Turkish PR Association. It was a fun party. The Turkish PR market, not one that I think is particularly well known generally, not necessarily viewed as um, a huge hub for at least global MNC PR money. Now, perhaps you'll tell me all of that is wrong. But what, what were your observations on the market? No, I think I think that's very true. You know, I think actually you can go back over a 10 or 15 year period. And Turkey has always been sort of, you know, at the on, on the B list of markets that people felt they had to pay attention to. So, you know, there have always been slightly more urgent priorities, whether it was Eastern Europe 15 years ago, Russia, China, Brazil, there's always somewhere a little more glamorous and a little more attractive than Turkey. But the reality is that, you know, Turkey is and has a decent-sized consumer population. Um, it has an interesting manufacturing base. It's a significant economic player. It is a wonderful location, sort of halfway between Europe, Asia, and the Middle East. I mean, it's almost literally a bridge between the, the two continents and two cultures. And if if you leave aside, and this is a big if, the, the political instability that has really plagued the country for the last couple of decades, it ought to be a very appealing market. Is it not becoming more appealing because of greater political instability elsewhere in that region? Perhaps, perhaps not. I mean, the, the currency is kind of a basket case right now, which creates an interesting opportunity. But you know, I, I also think it's slightly it's a slightly deceptive market. Uh, the Western PR agencies have, for the most part, struggled to get a toehold in Turkey. Most of them are represented by local affiliates. But the, uh, the independent firms in the market are pretty strong strong and pretty sophisticated about PR. You know, they're facing the same challenges that everybody else faces, insufficient talent, clients who are not willing to invest for value-added PR, mm. challenges when it comes to measuring the effectiveness of what they do. But there are some firms out there with 50, 60, 70 people who are doing a very nice business indeed and, you know, making some money. Do you sense that situation may change, that we're about to see more global firms look more closely at Turkey? I think we've had a couple open in the last year or, or two years, right? I think APCO, Weber Shandwick have both opened. Yeah. Edelman as well. Yeah, the Edelman and, and Weber Shandwick certainly have their own operations mm. on the ground there. Ketchum and Fleischmann are represented by some of the leading local affiliates. Mm. Grayling's um, there as well. Grayling is there. Um, every now and again, there seems to be a sort of shuffling of the deck and the affiliates move and find somebody else to partner with. I'm not sure that the, the relationships there are particularly 
basically long-term or stable for the mm-hmm. most part. MSL is there through Leo PR, which is you know part of the Leo Burnett operation. Um, but the firms that I met with were primarily indigenous firms. And you know, we've seen entries from a bunch of them, from firms mm-hmm. like Versailles and Zaracol and Excel in the awards competition over the years. And the quality of work has always been pretty impressive. So, yes, okay. Yeah. Do you feel there's anything there that stands out in the way that, uh, you know, Sweden has kind of become a magnet for creative PR work. Amsterdam as well has, has started to draw more global activity. Do you think Turkey has any particular advantages which could lend itself to, to a growing international PR market? I'm not sure that there's anything quite that striking. Um, we do see a lot of very good CSR campaigns mm. out of out of that market. I do. I, I feel like there's a big emphasis on uh, making sure that companies and and by the way, in many cases, the local companies, uh, Turk Telecom comes to mind as a big player in this arena. The ones who are doing the most sophisticated work in Turkey, though, you know, having said that, we're seeing good campaigns from the likes of Unilever, for example, who are Mm. generally very, very good in emerging markets. And that the domestic market is is growing well? It's growing, but the margins are under constant threat. I mean, I would would guess, based on the conversation that I was having, that we're seeing growth between 15 and 20 percent. But it's not hyper-profitable by any stretch of the imagination. It's, a, it's, a, it's still a tough market to make money in, I think. And that's, that presumably is what is discouraging any major acquisitions in, in that market is that, um, that the margins are so razor thin. And then from Turkey, you visited uh, Stockholm. I did. Our, I spent- uh, our favorite PR market, possibly. Yeah. Certainly the one that has really impressed us with the quality of the work and some of the people and the firms. Is that still the case? I mean, from what I've noticed, there are actually some, some newer firms emerging. I think Prime was, of course, the kind of perennial thoroughbred, but we've seen Young Relations and Deportivo coming up. Nava would be right. uh, another interesting Nava's player. Nava's in, is Swedish as yeah. well, right? And Triggers, of course. Yeah, I was going to say, what, what I've seen um, is... Um, a lot of firms in Sweden trying to be the next prime, um, and a lot of firms in other um, Nordic markets trying to be the Norwegian or the Finnish prime. The, mm-hmm. the Norwegian candidate would be Trigger, as you say. In Finland, there's a firm called Milton, mm-hmm. which you know does some interesting award-winning work in the local market. Denmark, and no. <laughs> so I'm not as familiar with Denmark. We don't mm-hmm. see nearly the volume of work from Denmark in the awards competition, for example. I'm not sure if there is a next generation Danish firm that I should be paying the same kind of attention to. Um, And actually, the reason I was in Stockholm was for um, an MSL Nordic region meeting. And so MSL and JKL people were there. And I met with some of their people from Oslo and some of their people from Copenhagen and desperately trying to persuade somebody that I should go speak to the Norwegian Norwegian and Danish PR associations so I can spend a little more time in market and figure out what's going on. Mm. Do you get the sense that the Swedish market is is still delivering that kind of high level of creativity? One of the things about Sweden that's always struck me is that it delivers these great campaigns and great work despite the firms not necessarily making a huge amount of money or, or growing at a particularly rapid pace. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I think for the size of the market, the firms probably do extremely well. I mean, mm. I you know, 
There are, in addition to Prime, four or five other mm-hmm. Swedish PR firms that have you know, somewhere in the region of 100 people, uh, which for a country the size of Sweden, population of Sweden, is pretty impressive. And, you know, I think if you look at firms like JKL, Crab, Halverson and Halverson, yeah. you know, which are in the sort of corporate and financial space, I think the margins at those firms are very healthy mm. or have been historically very healthy. So I think you can make money in Sweden. But I do feel like those firms and others need to start thinking internationally and, and of course, have mm. been thinking internationally in most cases uh, if they want to grow. Yeah. It's a lot of the international firms I've spoken to have, have said they they just don't consider Sweden a priority for them anymore because well, the investment required just doesn't add up with the growth they may. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a relatively small market, mm. and you have very tough, entrenched local mm. competition that has extraordinarily good reputation among Swedish companies and Swedish clients. And, you know, I'm not, not sure what, I'm not sure what a multinational would bring to that marketplace that was new and different and exciting. Okay. Well, from Sweden, let's move on to America. Well, last night, of course, we saw the annual marketing jamboree that is also, I think, disguised as a big NFL match, the the Super Bowl. We won't talk about the ads because we haven't seen them, and I'm not sure either of us have any particular intention of watching them. Uh, Let's talk about the the big buzzword of the last year or so, the real-time marketing. Of course, Oreo made a huge splash at the 2013 Super Bowl with its Dunk in the Dark tweet. And because of that, I guess, uh, we've seen a lot of brands trying to leap onto whatever the conversation is on Twitter and other social media platforms. And the Super Bowl, I guess, provides the biggest opportunity of that. I think we have a few examples from last night's game. Lots of brands trying lots of things. I mean, overall, what's your view of this? Do you feel that it's, it's, it's worthwhile for brands to be spending quite this much time and effort trying to uh, prepare themselves to act in a, spontaneous, in a spontaneous manner during Super Bowl? So on one level, yes, because I think that if you do the real-time marketing thing right, you can generate as much buzz mm-hmm. as you can for a 30-second commercial in the Super Bowl. And if you're crazy enough to pay whatever it is these days for a 30-second commercial in the Super Bowl, then sort of either trying to leverage that or expand that or make that you know, more interesting by doing real time as well, or instead makes perfect sense to me. You know, the level of investment, let's be honest, is still fairly low, even if you are planning to be spontaneous for, you know, months in advance. Mm. Having said that, you know, I can't help thinking that that a lot of these sort of real time phenomena are better publicity for the creative agency that came up with the idea Mm. than they are for the client. You know, there's certain things that we've talked about as being important in content marketing generally. Mm -hmm. And they're things like authenticity and relevance and stickiness and shareability. And 
you know, I think that I think that a lot of the real time marketing during the Super Bowl is better at some of those things than others. Mm-hmm. So I think that often they're very shareable. I mean, certainly the Oreo mm-hmm. tweet last year was you know shared at a pretty astonishing rate. Yeah, and and I think you could make the case that it was brand relevant in that particular instance. Do I think it was particularly sticky? I'm, I'm not sure about that. I mean, I'm not sure that this has any kind of, you know, sustained value. I've yet to see anybody try and sort of demonstrate return on investment in mm-hmm. a way that would make me comfortable that it was really, you know, really driving people to the to the stores or, you know, enhancing brand loyalty or any of the things that you would want a marketing campaign to do. So I would sort of put it on the, you know, low risk, low cost, unclear mm-hmm. reward category right now. Mm. But it's a big part of um, what public relations people and agencies are trying to do for clients. They see an opportunity there to grow their business. They see an opportunity to potentially access budgets beyond the communication spend. Uh, I mean, you know, at our own events, whether it's San Francisco or Miami, there's so much talk about real-time marketing. Are you a little concerned that at the moment it's a bit more rhetoric over reality? I have seen some very good, very opportunistic real-time marketing campaigns. So, I I mean, I guess some of my concerns are more specific to the venue, which is, Mm. first of all, I think the Super Bowl is incredibly crowded. Mm. Now, that gives you one potential advantage in that everybody, meaning the media, is paying closer attention to what you do during the Super Bowl than at any other time of the year. So, you know, getting, getting a sort of crossover success is more possible at the Super Bowl than it is at some other venues. But I also think that it just leads to a rather more scattershot, not necessarily particularly strategic approach. Mm-hmm. And I would just worry that my message was was getting lost or that it became more about the cleverness of the tweet or response mm-hmm. than it was about actually engaging with the consumer and, and doing yeah. any kind of long-term strategic benefit to the brand. Yeah, and I mean, I just wonder how much it matters to the public because you know you can make the case that Twitter for example is is kind of dominated by marketing people I mean that's why they call it the echo chamber for example it's a difficult case to make I think for these brands that they're actually changing public behavior or change actually realistically changing their engagement with the public via these tweets yeah, I mean, I, I've like I said, I've yet to see anything that demonstrates just mm. how much of an impact this is having on the bottom line mm. anywhere. You know, does it increase the number of Twitter followers and or Facebook friends? Probably. Mm. But that in itself is not a meaningful objective. You have to then do something with those followers and friends. Mm. And uh, But maybe, you know, I, maybe it improves, I guess, reputation, awareness, potentially consideration. You know, I, again, I, I worry that a lot of this activity sort of improves the reputation of the marketing department mm. for being hip and yeah. current yeah. without necessarily engaging consumers in a meaningful way. I mean, I think you have to be very careful to ensure that what you're doing really is relevant to the people who buy your products. Okay. And what did you think of Hillary Clinton's tweet? <laughs> This was uh, an interesting one. The third quarter of the game, she said, and this apparently was, was prepared well in advance. It looks like it. It's so much more fun to watch Fox when it's someone else being blitzed and sacked. Exclamation point. Okay, I mean, 
Hashtag Super Bowl. Yeah. First of all, I you know I'm not sure that that Fox, the Super Bowl broadcast channel, and Fox News are necessarily as analogous as they'd like you to believe. I or mean, I, or as she'd like you to. Believe. I guess it was a I guess it was a clever way of pandering to people who love Hillary and hate Fox. But you know, mm. do I think that it's going going to garner one more vote for her presidential bid? Should it materialize? Because we're all obviously still. Uh, you know, unsure about whether that's reality. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's cute, but mm. ultimately I suspect it has no meaning whatsoever. Okay, <laughs> we move on. Let's talk a little bit about Davos before the window on that particular event closes. A couple of things I wanted to discuss with you relating to my own trip to the event, the first time I went this year. First was actually a session I went to led by Microsoft's Mark Penn where he revealed some research into how people view technology around the world. The research was unsurprisingly conducted by Pension Berland, but leaving that aside, one of the things that struck me was Salesforce CEO Mark Benioff, who said that technology companies have to do a much better job improving their transparency around data if they want to stop being viewed as the enemies of privacy. Do you think that goes far enough? So, I mean, I think clearly that's true. I think, you know, the, the technology companies that banded together to condemn the NSA's data gathering efforts while continuing to gather vast amounts of data themselves and demand that they be allowed to do so without any kind of oversight. I mean, I'm being a little hyperbolic, but, you know, without, any, without any kind of oversight or uh, regulatory scrutiny just came across as incredible incredibly self-serving. And in all honesty, I do think that, that there ought to be, I mean, I think there's an opportunity for somebody in that space to become a genuine advocate for their customers and, you know, the citizenry at large in terms of data policy. And I think that there, I mean, I think there's going to be closer regulatory scrutiny going forward. Right. And I think that most technology companies will continue to fight that. And if they do so, any claims of transparency are going to be, you know, hypocritical at best. Mm. That's a really interesting point because so much of Davos, from what I could tell, seems to be a, a conscious attempt on the part of business to preempt regulation by saying the right things and promising to uh, behave better and, and regulate itself. Do you feel that they're, they're sincere in the things they come out with at Davos? You know, I always find that a difficult question. I mean, I, when, I, when I speak to CEOs about these issues... I do get the impression that they are sincere. Mm. When I talk to CCOs about what their CEOs genuinely believe, I get the impression that they're sincere. I really don't think that any of these people want to be, I mean, I, you know, in, in simplistic terms, bad guys. Mm. But I think that there is a constant need driven by the hyper-competitive marketplace and quarter-by-quarter -quarter scrutiny of financial results to compromise and cut corners and be slightly less good than you would like to be. Mm. And so I do think that these statements need to be treated as more aspirational than real. Mm. And I think they need to be taken with a fair amount of skepticism. I mean, if you, if you asked me the issue of inequality, for example, which was a big focus of discussion 
in, in the business world over the last couple of weeks. If you ask me whether I believe that the comments at Davos about the need to address or be concerned about rising income inequality was a true reflection of how business leaders think and feel, or whether the borderline insane op-ed that Tom Perkins wrote for the Wall Street Journal is a reflection of how business leaders think or feel. I mean, I suspect that there are more people who, who think and feel like the guys in Davos, who understand that it is a real problem. But if you ask me which of those two people you should pay attention, or which of those two sort of sides you should pay attention to in terms of predicting how business will behave going forward, I'd suggest that it would be Tom Perkins. I do not anticipate any business leader coming back uh, to America, for example, or to London or to anywhere else, and seriously advocating for policies that would make a difference in terms of income inequality. Well, that's a real problem, isn't it? Because the most cynical view holds that Davos is just empty posturing and perhaps a one-week atonement session for sins committed throughout the rest of the year, you're suggesting that may in fact be the correct interpretation? Yeah, I mean, okay. So I would hesitate I would hesitate to call it a public relations exercise because I suspect mm -hmm. that in the long term it does absolutely nothing um, for the relationship between business and the society in which it operates. It may do something for the relationship between business leaders and their own consciences. I mean, I suspect that it makes them feel better about themselves. You know, I think that there are positive aspects to Davos. I mean, I, first of all, I, I think it's better that businesses are talking about this stuff than not talking about this stuff. I think it's great that there's a level of engagement with the NGO community, yeah. for example, that you don't necessarily see on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm. I think that's, that, that's very healthy. I I think that there are some truly progressive businesses there that, that are making a difference. And I mean, I'm, I'm not suggesting that we've seen no progress on this score in recent years. Um, you know, I've already mentioned Unilever once, but you know, I think some of the things that Unilever is doing at the bottom of the pyramid mm. in terms of you know, its marketing practices, its sales practices, its corporate social responsibility, its, its sustainability policies, you know, is light years ahead of what we were seeing 10 or 15 years ago. But at the end of the day, um, I suspect anybody whose expectations of future business behavior are being set by the, the sort of heightened level of conversation at Davos is going to be very disappointed with the reality of business behavior going forward. And I would make the case that to a certain extent, that's not a good thing for business, that it's, it, if you don't live up to the lofty goals that you set for yourself at such a high profile event, that's going to lead to greater disappointment, a greater credibility gap, a greater loss of trust, yeah. which was another of the topics that, you know, people spent a lot of time on at Davos. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, talking about this stuff is not nearly as important as what you do the other 360 days of the year. Excellent. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you. I'm joined now by Osama Saeed, who is head of media and public relations 
at Al Jazeera. Osama, welcome to the Echo Chamber PR show. Hi, Rowan. I'm, I'm really pleased to be here. I'm, uh, you know, fan of the podcast. It seems actually very strange to be talking to you rather than just listening to you. <laughs> but thanks for having me on. Well, you know, we try and get everyone that's interested, try and involve them and get them participating as well. And we're, we're very happy to have you on. You've got quite an interesting background, which I wanted to maybe um, talk to you a little bit about before we get to some of the stuff you're doing at Al Jazeera. Um, you've been at Al Jazeera for how long now? Just over three years, three years last week. Okay, and before that you were... I suppose you'd be best described as, as a fairly prominent figure in the uh, in the Scottish political world. Yeah, yeah, it seems like uh, a very long time ago. Uh, I was uh, a candidate for the Scottish National Party as well as working for uh, the SNP and uh, the First Minister Alex Salmond, uh, as well as you know the the traditional journey through PR, doing uh, promotion for for various businesses and organizations mm, okay so why move to Al Jazeera what what prompted you to leave Scotland where presumably you were involved in a lot of the um, political activities uh, but now of course you've you've moved sorry you're based in Qatar yes that's yeah. right mm. well, it was a bit of a push and pull I, it was 2010 uh, I just uh, stood for election uh, unsuccessfully mm-hmm. and uh, you know it's 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 grueling uh, it takes its toll uh, I was very tired it has an impact on, on your family life as well you're, you're, you're out all, all hours of the evening chapping doors and I had that kind of thinking feeling I was going to be doing that that again uh, before too long there's, there's an election just about every year with the Scottish Parliament elections and, and UK elections and, and European elections but on the other side uh, you know I'd, I'd, I'd always been an Al Jazeera fanboy uh, from from ten years previously, um, you know, I was very heavily involved in the in the anti-war movement uh, in the lead up to the Iraq War, and uh, at that time, you know, Al Jazeera was you know leading the world in, in coverage from from the ground in Iraq and uh, in part in part of very important information for which we were you know accused of, of all sorts of bad things back then mm-hmm. uh, by the by the American administration but which now I think the world accepts as you know that was that was reality and and, and Jazeera were correct mm-hmm. and you know Jazeera has continued to to expand you know after that they launched the the English channel of Jazeera English and uh, you know leading the world in global coverage of how the world works and is interconnected and the opportunity came up to to join so you know i leapt at it and uh, i think that for me the, the biggest thing coming here was was the ambition both still within in jazeera to to be the recognized as, as the best uh, news operation in the world and also in this part of the world there, there's still a lot of drive i mean it's quite marked to when, when i go back to to scotland and the uk where you know there is constant talk of austerity and, and cutting back and having to limit that, that ambition and it's a very different atmosphere in this part of the world you know certainly since 2008 oh. do you miss at all the cut and thrust of the political world yeah always always particularly this year with the with the referendum coming up in, in september um I, I do still follow the news and uh, you, you you miss that that cut and thrust it's, it's quite different you know coming in into this environment um, although very similar in, in a lot of extents as well i think you know 
PR jobs don't get quite as full on as in, in terms of the news cycle and geopolitics as, as perhaps being being head of PR at uh, Al Jazeera. Uh, so I still get some element of that, but it's not quite as nasty as party political activity. So that, that aspect's different, but uh, we're still very much involved in what's happening in the world and uh, keeping in touch with things. Mm. We will get to talking more about Al Jazeera, I promise, but I just wanted to ask you a couple more questions about the political world you left. You mentioned the upcoming referendum. How do you view the SNP's uh, campaign that's ongoing? Do you feel that they've got a good chance for success? Yeah, I, I think they'll win. And, uh, you know, I, I, I would say that, obviously, but um, I, I know the, the people involved in, in the campaign, uh, I've worked with them. And, uh, you know, they, they get the strategy right because everyone points to the fact that uh, the Yes campaign has, has been behind in the polls consistently um, for, well, forever. But, you know, if you, if you look at both the 2007 election when, when the SNP came to power and the 2011 landslide um, election when, you know, unbelievably the SNP took a majority in a, in a proportional representative system, uh, what happened is at the turn of the year, they were always behind in the polls, and particularly in 2011, they, they looked like the SNP were, were about to be massacred. But the, the timing of the campaign is always set to be kicking when it really counts in, in, in the few months leading up. Uh, and uh, from, from everything that I've seen and, and people I've spoken to, it's the same this time around, that there's been this kind of phony war taking place, uh, not just over the last year, but before that. And, um, you know, people are keeping the powder dry till closer to polling day. And um, I saw this week that um, already we're, we're seeing uh, this close after the new year that the polls have narrowed. You know, it's closer than it's ever been. And I think you're going to see it getting closer and closer as we get to towards September. Mm, and, and of course, presumably you support the SNP campaign. Yeah, what what they've been doing up till now, I think, is they've had to answer a lot of the specific questions, and you know, people have got very fact-based queries about this, and um, the the Yes campaign have done the best that they can to, to answer them through through the white paper a couple of months ago. But I think what you're going to see as we get closer to September is um, what people will actually base their vote on, which is I think more of an emotional response. You know, do, do people feel confident enough to do it, and will you be able to put the opposite fear into the public? I mean, the, the No campaign are trying to they've got this famous project fear thing of, of scaring the Scottish public, mm. but I think um, on on the psychological side, what the what the Yes campaign are going to have to do is is put the fear of loss of a lost opportunity. Um, into the public and uh, you know that's that's going to be critical um, if, if they're going to get over the, the the finishing line but it's going to be close it's going to be very close and uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating time in not just Scottish politics but, but Scottish history mm, indeed and UK history as well I guess Al Jazeera then do you feel that um, your experiences in Scotland uh, both in terms of um, the, the, the public relations and communications experience and um, your retail politics background has helped you in your role at Al Jazeera? Yeah, I, I think so. You know, it's hard to say. I mean, I, perhaps other people could, could do the job just as well as I could. I mean, I've, I've got to be humble about that. But um, coming into the job here, the I mean, I arrived the first day of the, the uprising in, in, in Egypt 
which was you know a great time to to arrive because that was considered to be a kind of watershed moment uh, the, the 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 tipping point where people really took Al Jazeera seriously as as an international news organisation mm-hmm. and you know our job was as it is now uh, to promote what we're doing and get that out to the public but having that understanding of the news and how it works is is really important but at the same time you know within my team you know that you know we're, we're not all people with political backgrounds you know I've got people who've come from a consumer background um, I've got a journalist uh, within the team you know and so people from very different backgrounds and, and I think it's important within within the team that we all have that variety of experience and we all are able to to lead and uh, come together on on important on, on different issues depending on what it is at that particular time mm. You mentioned before some of the issues Al Jazeera faced with its reputation. Do you think that those issues still persist in certain countries, particularly, for example, in the US, where I sometimes get the impression that Al Jazeera is not always viewed in a realistic fashion? Yeah, look, Al Jazeera represents um, something different for some people, and, and that will always be the case. And, and you know, I'm, I'm particularly thinking of, of those people that have a particular view of, of the Middle East. Mm-hmm or we might be to the far right of politics. Um, we're never going to win them over, and uh, we, we just write that off. Uh, but what we have done over the last few years is that within the the media industry itself and within political circles, there's been a massive change in the way that we're viewed. You know, we're, we're watching in the White House and the corridors of powers in, in, in London. Mm. Um, and any journalist you speak to around the world will, will have, um, you know, an admiration uh, for, for what, we're, what we do and, and what we're trying to do. Mm. Um, the big challenge that we've got um, in in 2014 is how do we now take that uh, reservoir of, of goodwill uh, and make a serious dent into um, into the, the, the mass public? Uh, because we want to get our viewership figures up. Mm. Um, if, we, if we take the United Kingdom just as one example, we we're doing very well. We are the, the most watched uh, international news channel. Mm. Uh, but we think that there's... there's uh, a, a even larger audience for for what we do you know those people that, that do have a global outlook on 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 the world uh, that, that do see you know politics and, and economics and uh, migration as, as, as international things and, and they want that understanding then, then we're there to to provide that mm. we live in a global village and you know that we, we see ourselves as the the news channel for that global village and getting that across to the public is going to be our number one priority uh, this year and uh, you know we'll, we'll see how that goes. But I, I, you know, very confident of uh, of making a serious dent in, in, in the viewing in the viewing arena. Is that one of the reasons why you hired a new public relations agency in the UK? I think you hired Edelman recently. Is that to, to sort of support this this program? Yeah, exactly, exactly. We, we've got we've got agencies um, in in all of our key markets mm-hmm. around the world, and obviously you know, the the UK is is one of them. Um, but um, you know the the way that we're structured, we've got a, we've got a central team in in Qatar uh, at our headquarters because uh, the most important thing that 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 we lead on is our content so we're very close to the newsroom as, as a PR team and what our editorial uh, people in, in both news and programs are doing uh, and we look to to repackage that and get that across to the public in different ways whether that's through traditional media uh, social media events or, or other tactics and uh, our agencies then in, in other parts of the world help support getting that content over to over to the public 
And what are your ambitions for the U.S.? For the U.S., well, the, the big the big thing from from last year was the establishment of Al Jazeera America. It's it's a hugely exciting thing. It's it's something I think just uh, just Al Jazeera could do, which is just um, decide very quickly that we were we we're going to set up a dedicated uh, U.S. channel, uh-huh. uh, get it up and running within within seven months, and that was launched in August. And uh, we're continuing to build. You know, the the news operation is still expanding, and uh, it's, it's it's also going to take a while and a lot of effort to 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 build our viewership. But we're we're committed to do that, and um, it's it's a really exciting venture. It's interesting you mentioned that um, Al Jazeera is seen as something else, and and I guess one of your roles is is to try and and change the way it's viewed. And I think you know, as as you describe, that effort has been largely successful. You you've also been quite active in in various Islamic organisations um, in Scotland, and it seems to me that the work there, there are parallels almost in in the work that you did in these Islamic organisations in Scotland and. Um, some of the things you're doing with Al Jazeera. I mean, do you agree with that that kind of characterization? Um, not really. Um, I mean, I would I would say that faith and and even being from the Arab region, it's got very little to do with what we do. Um, I think one of the, the the great things about working here is that you know I work. Um, next to a newsroom which has over 50 nationalities uh-huh. and um, you know a bunch of different languages spoken and, and a bunch of different faiths um, and that's reflected in our news output as well yeah we happen to be headquartered in the Middle East but you know our top story can be from just about anywhere we've got, we've got 70 bureaus around the world you know hundreds of journalists uh, putting in stories and because we don't have a home market per se you know, if, if you're looking at, uh, you know, BBC World or CNN International, you know, they, they do have, uh, a, a, you know, an obvious predisposition towards either British or, or American issues. Um, mm. You know, most of the time that's where their top story will be for, for obvious reasons. They, to some extent, cater, catering for diasporas or people coming from that cultural anchoring. Mm. We don't have that. I mean, it's, it's, it's a great thing that our editors do is look at the world to see what's happening and, uh, you know, if it's, if it's coming the stories coming out of Africa will lead on that mm. if it's in South America will we'll lead on it um, and um, you know it's, it's very global in its outlook sure yeah let me let me rephrase slightly I don't mean to imply that Al Jazeera is a, an Islamic news organization I think what I was trying to focus in on was some of the work you did in Scotland appeared to be around um, building bridges between the Islamic community and and the broader Scottish community, uh, and perhaps explaining that um, that you know Muslims, whilst they might be seen as being different, they're actually you know they're actually Scots like everyone yeah. else. Do you think that's accurate? Yeah, I think people have got to be seen for for their contribution. Right. I think the, the days of communally. Uh, approaching uh, the country or issues are, are behind. Uh, you know, I think the, the big thing for 
for Muslims, say within within the UK, is to just be normal. Mm. You know, go about you, go about your thing, and you know most 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 Muslims do that. You know, if they're working in the NHS or, or they're running businesses, uh, and that's the, the best thing that people can do to to normalise themselves, rather than you know make a big deal about the fact that that we've got mosques and you know mm. we're, we're you know we're contributing to the community this or that. I think it's people want to see real life stories, real life examples and you know the, the incident you know as we see in the UK all the studies show that the, the incidence of Islamophobia or people having negative impressions of Muslims goes down dramatically if they actually know somebody. <laughs> that was always my message uh, back home, and and I think you know for for Al Jazeera, the, the, the biggest thing that we can do if people still have a have a perception of us as, right. as being from the Middle East or, or something like that, the biggest thing that we can do is is lead on what we do, you know, and mm. encourage people to 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 tune in. And in the UK, they can watch on on any of the uh, cable or satellite platforms or preview or anything, mm. and and see that. You know, it's, it's it's not people with you know Irish with big beards and, and face veils and things like that. It, you know, that's that's not what Al Jazeera is. Uh, Al Jazeera is you know multinational news organisation reporting on the world. Um, and you know, if that also helps bring down perceptions of Arabs and Muslims in, in general, then great. Mm. Uh, but you know, we're, we're just being normal. We're, we're doing our thing. Yeah, I mean, you, you wouldn't say your job is to try and, and redress perceptions of Arabs and Muslims. No, no. I mean, that's 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 not our job. But that's mm. um, you know, that, you know, personally, I think that's something that's that's, that's going to happen. There's going to be a lot more understanding and love and harmony in, harmony in the world. But uh, you know, whether Al Jazeera can do that themselves, um, you know, I, I don't think so. I mean, it's it's an interesting topic. I say this as a fellow Muslim myself. I mean, does the Islamophobia in the media, in particular, does that does that bother you? I mean, uh, to be honest with you, um, I'm, I'm not following the, the detail of things. Um, oh. You know, I know that there are still, unfortunately, various incidents that, that, that still happen, which are fueled by what's happening in the world. Um, and I think the, the biggest thing to, to help understanding would be to to get past some of the geopolitics. Um, oh. And, and uh, you know, I think um, you know a lot more, a lot more peace in Middle East would, um, and um, you know, Afghanistan's all within there as well and that's wrapped up mm-hmm. uh, but um, I am a little bit distant from, from, from what's going on within the UK and, and the atmosphere unfortunately mm. and presumably you don't come across that kind of Islamophobia via your work for Al Jazeera no no uh, it's, as I said the, the workplace here is very very cosmopolitan um, it's, it's mm. one of the things I, I love best about, about working here is, um, is how multinational and multi-faith it is mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, Osama, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we've really enjoyed talking to you, and we'd be very keen to have you on the Echo Chamber in the uh, in the not-too-distant future. I'd love to. Thank you. Thanks for your time as well. Excellent. So that concludes this week's Echo Chamber PR podcast. As always, you can reach us with your feedback. You can get me on email at our website, www.homesreport.com, on our Twitter account, on Facebook. You can even try calling us over the phone. Good luck with that. Um, we, we look forward to all of your comments, and as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.